So good morning. I'm very glad you're here. Back for part two. If you did not get the handout, but you had last week's, it's the same handout. I didn't add anything to it. Uh, But I did add a little bit into the oral presentation, just because uh, I figure some of you read that handout, and I don't want you going to sleep too early in the lesson. So uh, buckle in. Now, for those of you recognizing we've got a holiday weekend, and I've already met a number of guests that are here, including some friends of ours who are in from New Orleans, Leroy and Vera, it's nice to have you all here. Um, A number of you would not have been here to hear part one. So it's not a long redo of part one, but just a real quick little skip across the surface of the water. So bear with me. I started out telling you that I hate nutgrass. I hate nutgrass because they have these nasty little roots that make it impossible to get to the nut that's two inches deep, and it just grows back. Now, I use that as an example because what we really want to do before we study the New Testament is we want to lay a foundation that enables us to better understand the roots of the New Testament. Now, we know that one root of the New Testament is the Old Testament, that's for sure. And so we reviewed... Um, talked about the importance of understanding a number of different things. Of course, we need to understand the language, and we're going to be looking over the next couple of years that we're in the New Testament at the Greek language. We'll have a chance to learn some Greek. I'm going to teach you some Greek, and uh, you're going to really, really, really enjoy it. I promise. I hope. And so... Uh, uh, we'll do that. We'll be looking at some archaeology and some of the things like that. We'll be looking at the geography because some really neat things happen when you understand the New Testament placement of events in light of what happened in those same places in the Old Testament. And so there's some really neat geography ties that just reading through the Bible we don't necessarily get. But we'll be looking at those carefully. I wanted to look at it in terms of this verse out of Galatians 4, 4 through 5. In that, Paul wrote the following. When the fullness of time had come, and that's God's timing. Jesus Christ did not just happen, but he happened at the precise correct moment in history. And so the events of history had, and the prophetic word of Scripture had led up to the time of Jesus, and that was the perfect time for him to come. God sent forth his Son at the fullness, or the ripeness. That's like the fullness there is is the same idea of ripe, when it was mature, when it was ripe, when it was perfect to be picked. That's the time God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the Old Testament system, the law, the Torah, to redeem those who were under the law so that we, including those outside of the law, might receive adoption. So Jesus died at just the right time. We talked about that last week and said what we really want to zoom in on is something between the past of the Old Testament and the time of Jesus coming. And so we we started out with a contrast And we reminded everybody that the Old Testament actually ends about 400 B.C. That means that the prophetic word of the prophets and the events of the Old Testament end at 400 B.C. Now, the New Testament doesn't start for 400 years later. So you have this 400-year gap where Scripture is silent. If you go back to the end of the Old Testament, the Jews are living under the Persian Empire. If you go back, they're trying to restore Jerusalem. They're trying to restore Judah. They're trying to restore a national religion and a practice and a faith. By the time you get to the New Testament, though, the Persians are gone. They're not mentioned in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the ruling power is the Roman Empire. Alexander the Great comes and goes during that 400 years. In the New Testament, you're reading about Pharisees. They don't have Pharisees in the Old Testament. They have Sadducees. They didn't have those in the Old Testament. You read about synagogues. You don't read about those in the Old Testament. All of that were lots of the things that happened between the end of the Old Testament 
and the start of the New Testament. And to understand those aspects of the New Testament, we need to know the history. So that's what we did last week, is last week we really concentrated on the history, what happened historically. What are the factual events that happened that gave rise to the Roman Empire, that gave rise to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the synagogues, things of that nature. If you missed that lesson then it's still in the handout today, or you can go back and watch it on the internet. Meanwhile, we saved for today looking at the documents or the writings that were produced by Jewish people and scholars and thinkers during the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. That 400-year gap was not a time where people forgot how to write, It's not a time where they ran out of paper or tablets. It's a time where the writings were not deemed to be prophetic. See, the Old Testament was never considered the Old Testament as Scripture by the Jews simply because it was something that the Jews were writing. It was never the the musings of man. Or just some simple history book. What made the Old Testament scripture, what made it special, what made it unique from other writings, is that it was put down by prophets who were declaring the word of the Lord. Even what we would call history books, Kings, First and Second Kings, Samuel, those books in Old Testament thought are called prophet books. Because they're the historical writings of the prophets. There were lots of other historical writings of the Jews. But the Old Testament were special scriptures. Now the Jews continued to write between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That 400 years and scholars have grouped those writings into a couple of different categories. There are two that I want to talk to you about today. One is called the Apocrypha. And when I say it's called the Apocrypha, that's a term that's got a lot of usage, but but one of the ways it's used is to refer to a certain set of books. There's a second set of books that are called the Pseudepigrapha. And those are two that I want to talk to you about today. Now we're into new material. Let's start with the Apocrypha. Apocrypha comes from a Greek word. The Greek word means hidden away. And these are books that were hidden away. In that sense, they carry the label. There are other books that are called apocryphal books, including ones of the New Testament. But we're using the word the way a number of scholars use it to refer to those special writings that some people count as Old Testament scriptures and others do not. The basic dividing line on that is, the difference, is, is a difference between the Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible. Now, the Catholic Bible won't typically call it, and Catholic scholars won't typically call it the Apocrypha. They've got another word for it. These are books that were not included in the Jewish Bible. So you don't find them in the Jewish Bible. And in fact, that's why the Protestants, that's the leading reason the Protestants left it out. The Protestants reasoned, we want the Jewish scriptures, whereas the Catholic Church kept the scriptures that had been the scriptures of the church at the time of Luther for at least a thousand years. And so that's the dividing line. Now, the Catholics will call these deuterocanonical books. That's the big 50-cent theological word, if you want to use it. Oh, I see you've got a deuterocanonical Bible. Man, I mean, you say that and it's like, you are in like Flynn. So, um, deutero, from the Latin for second, canonical, canon. So the Catholics will say the Old Testament in the Jewish Bible was the first canon, but there's a second set of canonical or canon books. We Protestants call them the Apocrypha. The Catholics would call them deuterocanonical, the second Old Testament canon. Make sense? For the Catholics, the Catholic Church, as of 
1500 or something, I think, is when the Pope made the final decree. But uh, uh, those books are deemed inspired scripture. Protestants generally do not take that position. The Protestant view, though, isn't that they're junk. The Protestant view is that they are inspirational writings. So for the Catholic view, they're inspired scripture. For the Protestant view, they're inspirational writings. You can think of it this way. Have you ever read a book or a, about a book by, or seen a movie by C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia? Okay. That's an inspired... No, not in the sense of Scripture. That's an inspirational in the sense that it's written inspirationally. You, you see the difference? Does this make sense? So for the Protestants, these books are not books that are holy Scripture. They're not oracles of God produced by the prophets to be considered Scripture. But they are very valuable writings that teach very spiritual messages that are to be accorded respect and are deemed worthy of study. Much like uh, um, uh, you would find Christian literature today. Except it's historical. So with that, let's talk about some of them. A lot of you have some Catholic background. Maybe this isn't new to you. But a lot of you are Protestants who have not spent a lot of time studying them. The first book that we'll talk about is First Esdras. And it's probably Ezra, First Ezra. But First Ezra's and this is a book that that's, uh, contains some of the same historical time periods as the Old Testament. One of my favorite stories in there is the debate of the three soldiers. Now these are three soldiers for the Babylonian king. I'm sorry, the Persian king, excuse me. Three soldiers for the Persian king. And the Persian king's about to go to bed and they're guardsmen, they sort of guard him. And they start having a debate. Here's the debate. What is the most powerful thing in the world? They decide they'll each write their answer on a sheet of paper. Put it under the king's pillow. The king wakes up the next morning. They'll tell him what they did. King will read the three sheets. And the king and the wise men of his court will decide who's right and they feel confident the king will reward the winner incredibly. So what's the most powerful thing in the world? Soldier one writes down wine. He says, look, it's the great equalizer. Wine makes a fool of the rich and the poor. You drink enough, you can't tell if someone's high and mighty or living in the gutter. You drink enough, and it doesn't matter if you're wealthy or poor, educated or dumb. Wine is the equalizer. It will govern the decisions of every man. Second soldier. This is the next morning. The king's opening these and having each of the soldier explain it. So the first soldier, he's feeling pretty good. He thinks he got that answer right. Liquor. Second soldier says, nah, just wait for mine. And don't you know in front of the king, he was feeling pretty smug. He said, the king is the most powerful. Now, vote king. <laughs> you know, he's, he's kind of like catering to the jury. Um, so he says, the king, here's his reason. He says, men do amazing things. Men control nature. Men control animals. Men go to war. Men can do all sorts of things, but who do all men account to? The king. And the king tells them when to go to war, how to go to war, what to do. He divides up the spoils. So men are powerful, but the king, who's the leader of all men, is the most powerful of all. And he's feeling pretty good. Third soldier. Now, nah, it's women. He says, don't fool yourself. Wine. Yeah, it's, it's powerful. The king. Yeah, he's powerful. But when it all is said and done, don't we all come home and report back to our wives? He says, you can go out there and you can conquer everything. And you bring all of the spoils back home to your wife. 
For that matter, you can have the world's greatest treasures and be in a room with all of the great treasures. And if a beautiful woman walks in, all of the men will quit looking at the treasure and look at her. Women most must be the most powerful, but then the soldier kind of crossed out his answer and had another answer. He said, but honestly, as powerful as women are, there is one thing that's more powerful, and that's truth. Truth is the, the most powerful there is. Now, these types of debates might seem to you interesting, but I want to underscore that even though these were not part of the Jewish Bible... Good Jews read and knew these stories. These were part of their understanding and part of their culture. And when Jesus would declare, I am the way, the truth, and the life, truth to those people as they hear him say it, is the most powerful thing in the world. That was the decision. The guy who said truth won. Truth trumps everything. Now, that's first Esdras. Second Esdras, apocalyptic visions, the end of the world. And this is a series of these visions. Now, one of the big differences, we're turning the screen off for a minute. One of the big differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament is in the Old Testament, angels are few and far between. In the New Testament, the idea of angels and demons is very, very present. During this time period, the people were growing much more attuned to the idea of angels and demons. And so, um, um, in 2nd Esdras, Ezra is asking, why is there evil in the world? And the answer that's given him is, the human mind is too limited to understand what God is doing. Here's the way the angel Uriel actually says it. He says, you want me to answer the question, why is there evil? I'll do it, but I need to ask you three questions first. You answer these questions. Ezra says, okay, I'm ready. How much fire in a pound of fire? I'll go for question number two. How much wind in a bushel of wind? Uh, Uriel, let's try door number three. I'll get that question. Door number three. Okay, bring back yesterday and let's do it again. And Ezra says, I can't answer any of that. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have an answer. And the reply of the angel Uriel is this. Look, those are things you live. Those are things you touch. You live with fire. You touch the wind. You know these things. You lived yesterday. And you can't answer those questions? How are you going to answer questions about things you have no clue about? You can't even remotely understand what God is thinking. Now this is written in a way where the angel Uriel is right. And Ezra is the one sitting around going, uh... Gee, I guess, I guess I was out of line asking that question or I don't have enough understanding. It is so fascinating to see, when we get to the New Testament, you'll see Jesus using this same approach on the, those who come to challenge him and what God is doing. He'll even ask him, do you know which way the wind blows? How do you plan tomorrow? Jesus will ask them questions they're not able to answer. It's, 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 it's a thought form that exists within his culture where Jesus is using the cultural conventions of his day to convict people of the truth of God. These are background things we need to understand. Here's another apocalyptic issue. Why were the unrighteous nations allowed to judge Israel? And there's this whole layout of what God's going to do in history. That, that there's going to be uh, 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 all sorts of things. But ultimately in the coming age, it's all going to work out. Why haven't the age come yet? Why haven't the Jews inherited the earth? Uriel says, well, first you've got to have a 400-year reign of the Messiah. Then there's going to be judgment. And he talks about it in language that will remind you of Revelation. 
And when we reach the book of Revelation, we will discuss how the terms and the visions that John had were ones that were already communicating in the minds of those people because they'd been reading about these symbols and known about them all of their lives. For example, there's a coming punishment of Israel and then a new Jerusalem. And the way it's described, there's a three-headed eagle that rises up with 12 wings and the wings keep falling off and new wings coming on. Rises up from the sea until a lion confronts it and confronted with the lion, it dissolves. And the lion is the Messiah. So all of these types of things, this type of literature, the Son of Man rises from the sea, destroys his enemies by fire... All of this is in there. Now, there's another interesting thing in this book that that, uh, uh, I don't think is factually accurate, totally. But I do think that it's it's insightful to us. And so I want to underscore this for a moment. At the end of 2nd Ezra's, there's a narrative about how Ezra took five of the fastest writers, five of the fastest scribes, And he dictated the 24 books of the Old Testament, along with 70 other secret books. Now, the number's not right, and the process may not be right, but I do think that this writing, which is probably around 150 to 170 B.C., I do think that this writing captures... The truth of the tradition that Ezra was one of the principal Old Testament prophets that put together the Old Testament corpus of material. All right, let's set that aside. Let's move on. We've got to move. Tobit. Tobit is an interesting book. Tobit is almost like the sequel to Job. Job the second volume or something. Tobit's a good guy. He's got a wonderful wife. But Tobit gets struck with blindness. And his life is going down the tubes, and he's losing everything, and he thinks everything's going horrible. So he takes his son Tobias, and he sends his son Tobias off to go do some good deeds. And Tobias goes, uh, sees a man who's dead that needs burial, stops what he's doing to bury the guy. Lots of things like that start happening. But, oh, I forgot to tell you, before he leaves... The dad tells the son the golden rule in reverse. So in Tobit, we have, let's see if I can, we'll put it up here for you. In Tobit, you have this. Do not do to anyone what you yourself would hate. Don't do to someone else what you don't want done to you. This is the principle that Jesus taught, but Jesus took the negative and juiced it up and made it a positive. This is good. I mean, it's, it's don't do to someone what you don't want them to do to you, but it's a whole nother batch of fish to turn around and say, in fact, go the next step and do unto others as you would have them do to you. See, that's Jesus teaching, go the next mile. Even in the golden rule statement. Because the negative was already in everybody's thoughts. The negative, okay, well, I'm not going to hit you because I don't want you to hit me. That's different than saying, I'm going to show you attention because I'd like it when people show me attention. You see what I mean? So this is yet another way, understanding these stories are going to help us put the New Testament into a greater context than we had before. Demonology, big here. Oh, Tobias. So the son is going to this foreign town to do his dad's business, right? Finds out that there's this woman named Sarah who's a kinfolk that he's obligated to marry because her husband died. But it wasn't just her husband, number one. Husband number one died, number two died, number three died, number four died, number five died, number six died, number seven died. And all of them died right after the wedding before the consummation. And he goes to town and he's told, you're the next relative, you've got to marry her now. And the angel Raphael appears to him and says, look, don't worry, it was a demon that was causing this. Here's how you get rid of the demon. You're going to be fine. So he says, okay, Sarah, looks like it's you and me. I'm going to marry you. 
Sarah's dad, bless his heart, starts digging the grave before the wedding. The story of Judith, great story. Uh, not one that, that most scholars say have anything to do with uh, history, but it still has a moral. Don't submit to your enemies, instead trust God. It's placed during the time where Nebuchadnezzar's armies are coming against Jerusalem. And Jerusalem and Judah is rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar. Now Nebuchadnezzar himself isn't there, but his general Holofernes is there. Whole of fairness, the general gets very upset that the Jews are rebelling. And he goes and grabs some of the other neighboring uh, uh, communities and says, so who are these hillbillies that have locked themselves in up in Jerusalem? I mean, do they have a big army? Are they really something tough? How dare they rebel against us? And, and the hillbillies say, oh, I mean, uh, the, the Canaanites, the other Canaanites say, oh, look, they're these Jewish people and they originally from, were from Chaldea. Then they came up to Mesopotamia, and then their God dumped them in the middle of our land. They went to Egypt during a famine, but he brought them out through all these miracles, and he gave them the land again. He said, now here's the bad news. If these people are walking with God, he protects them, and you just better leave them alone. But if they're sinning against their God, he washes his hands of them. Now, the soldiers of, of uh, Holofernes and Nebuchadnezzar, they're saying, ah, look, look, everybody's got their gods. They've never helped them before. We've been whipping everybody. We'll go against them. We'll follow you, general. So the general goes there. Meanwhile, inside Jerusalem is this very holy woman named Judith. Her husband had died, left her with a lot of property and everything else. She's a rich woman. She's a gorgeous woman. And she's a holy woman. Those three in tandem, what a, a combination. So you've got this rich, good-looking, holy woman who's a widow. And she decides with the armies surrounding and cutting off Jerusalem, she's going to take matters into her own hands. She goes to the community leaders and says, look, uh, when I just just follow my lead. They said, okay. So she says, uh, open the gates tonight. And what she had done before she said open the gates is she had gone in and it says that she'd put on her nicest, most alluring clothes, the ones that she used to wear when her husband was alive. She's dolled herself up. She's got a bag of food. And she goes to the gate and says, open the gate, let me out. So she goes out the gate. She doesn't get far before the, the Babylonian soldiers accost her. What? She says, time out. Don't accost me. I've left on my own volition. Here's why. My people are holed up in there. Big mistake on their part. You guys are the best. And I'm going to tell Hole of Fairness exactly how to go at conquering Jerusalem. I'm going to lay it all out for him. That's why I'm here. They said, well, he'll be delighted to see you. They take her to him. He's stunned by her beauty. In fact, he starts lusting after her. And so there he is, beguiled by her beauty. She lays it out and she says, look, the bottom line is, when the Jews are sinning, that's the time to take them. And oh, they're about to sin big because they're running out of food. Before long, they'll be eating non-kosher. So all you got to do, each night I'm going to go out and pray and God's going to reveal to me whether he's upset with them enough yet for you to conquer them. And I'll come back and tell you. Well, the general thinks this is a dandy idea. He really thinks she's stunning in appearance. And he says, well, here, let me feed you. She says, oh, no. God's only going to communicate with me if I eat kosher. So I got a bag full of kosher food here. And he says, well, what if you run out of food before it's time for us to attack? She says, well, don't worry about that. When I run out of, I, I will get finished with what God's put me toward before I run out of food. Well, for three nights then, she's allowed to go outside the, the camp of the soldiers to pray to God in, alone, uh, in solitude. And then she comes back in. After three nights of it, the general says, Man, I would like to spend some more time with that woman. So he says, Set a big banquet. And tell her, I insist she come eat our food. 
And so the invitation's made. She dolls herself up and says, oh, I'd be just delighted. She shows up at the banquet. The king or the general just gets stone drunk, orders everybody out of the tent except her because he's set to seduce her. And it says he had wanted to seduce her since the first moment he met her. The problem is he drank a little too much. And he falls asleep before he can seduce her. She reaches up, takes his sword, chops his head off, takes her two whacks to get it off, puts it in a bag, and then leaves the tent saying, oh, it's time for me to go off in solitude and pray. And the soldiers, oh, right this way, and usher her off to solitude. She's banging on the gates of Jerusalem. Let me in, let me in, let me in. They let her in. What you got in the bag? Look, here's the general's head. Stick it on the wall. They'll be scared to death. And they are, and they flee. Another book, The Wisdom of Solomon. Now, this is an interesting book. This is a book that's not written by Solomon. But it's, it's wisdom, supposedly, of Solomon. And it's clearly a book that was in Paul's mind as Paul was writing the early part of Romans. I've put some of the passages up here. Paul writes in Romans 1.20, The invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. In other words, there's the evidence of God is all around us in the things we see in the world. The wisdom of Solomon says it this way, the greatness and beauty of created things gives us a corresponding idea of their creator. Paul goes on to say, because that when they, the, the pagans, knew God, they've not glorified him as God. They haven't given thanks, but they became vain in their thoughts. Foolish hearts were darkened. The wisdom says, all men are vain. Because they don't know God anymore. Who by these good things that are seen, even though it's apparent that he's there, they couldn't understand him that is. There are more passages, more New Testament writers, uh, clearly influenced by some of the thoughts there. And so we've got the wisdom of Solomon. Uh, Daniel, there are some add-ons to the book of Daniel. And I put in your list, sometimes people say there are 15 apocryphal books, sometimes 14, sometimes 13. Some Bibles, uh, uh, translators will take the add-ons from Daniel and add-ons from Esther, and they'll add them into the original books. They'll take Baruch and they'll add it into Jeremiah and things like that. But let me tell you about Daniel. Susanna is a, a, a young married lady who goes into a garden and wants to have some alone time, so she sends out some handmaidens, and two um, dirty old men are in there. And they go up to Susanna and they say, hey, uh, either you let us have our way with you, or we're going to tell everybody that you sent those maidens out because there was a young man in here, and you had an adulterous affair with him, and we caught you. He was too strong. He ran off. But we managed to withhold you back. And you'll get stoned for being an adulteress. Two witnesses there are two of us. She says, well, I'm ruined either way. But if I'm ruined either way, I'd rather be ruined honorably before God. So she starts yelling, rape, rape, rape. People come in. These two guys say, oh, no, we caught her red-handed in an adulterous relationship. Put her to trial quickly as in front of the elders. She's sentenced to death never having a chance to defend herself or anything else. Daniel walks in as she's going off to, to be stoned and says, Time out. I don't trust these two dirty old men. And through brutal lawyer-like cross-examination, he sequesters them, judge. He puts them under the rule. He says, I'm going to ask witness number, dirty old man one, I'm going to ask you a question, but dirty old man two is not allowed to hear the answer. What kind of tree was she under when you saw her with the, the supposed adulterer man? Uh, it was a yew tree. Okay, fine. Dirty old man two, what kind of tree was she under? We well, had a different kind of tree. And so everybody's, oh, Daniel's all wise, she's saved. My favorite Daniel add-on, though, is not that. My favorite Daniel add-on is the story of the dragon. 
This is supposedly Daniel is at, Nebuch- is at uh, 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 the, the palace, the Babylonian palace. And uh, uh, this is Daniel sees the, the, uh, the dragon. There's a dragon. And the, the Babylonians are worshiping the dragon. And they did do dragon worship, though not like a real dragon. Uh, it's like a pretend dragon. So anyway... Um, uh, so they're doing dragon worship. Daniel says, you really, you're worshiping this thing? He says, yeah. I says, all right, well, I can fix this. And he makes a dragon cake. The dragon cake is made out of tar, hair, and fat. He makes the dragon cake. He feeds the dragon. And when he does, the dragon explodes. He says, now, you want to worship an exploding dragon or God? They said God, and that helped. Now, there's another, another uh, book called The Prayer of Manasseh. And I do want to take a moment and look at this. I'll remind you who Manasseh was. In, Manasseh was an evil king in the Old Testament. But Chronicles adds an extra story about Manasseh that's not in the book of Kings. And Chronicles says that late in his kingship, he prayed a prayer of confession and made himself right with God. Now, we don't have the prayer. But there is a prayer of Manasseh that someone wrote, most likely to, to reflect what they think he would have prayed. And I, I won't uh, give it all to you, but, but I want you to see some of it, because it's a very touching prayer. Um, it's a profound prayer for a sinner, which we all are. My transgressions abound, O Lord. My transgressions abound. I'm not worthy to look up and gaze at the height of heaven because of the number of my wrongdoings. Bowed down with a heavy chain of iron, I grieve over my sins. I find no relief because I've provoked your anger and I've done what's evil in your eyes, setting up idols and so piling sin on sin. Let's make that a little bigger. Piling sin on sin. Now I humble my heart, imploring your great goodness. I've sinned, O Lord, I've sinned. I acknowledge my transgressions. I pray and beg you, spare me, O Lord, spare me. Destroy me not with my transgressions on my head. Don't be angry with me forever, nor store up evil for me. Don't condemn me to the grave. For you, Lord, are God of the penitent. You will show your goodness toward me, for unworthy as I am, you will save me in your great mercy. Um, a profound prayer, uh, uh, worthy of, of anyone praying. There's First and Second Maccabees. These are history books by and large, not in the sense that one goes and then the other goes. They both cover the same time period, probably written, the time period of the Maccabees, probably written by different people. The Second Maccabees kind of reads like the National Enquirer. It's got like all the things inquiring minds wanted to know. So, that's a general view of the Apocrypha. You've now just uh, supplemented your Protestant Bibles pretty substantially with material that, from a Protestant perspective, is something that should inspire us, even though it's not deemed inspired on the level of Scripture. Make sense? Let's talk about the Pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha comes from two Greek words. Pseud, like pseudo, means false. Epigrapha means who it's assigned to, who the writer is. So these are falsely ascribed writings. Now this is a very important concept for us to have. It's important for us because it helps us understand the integrity of Scripture. One of the questions that all of us have, and a question that we'll be talking about in this class is, how do we know what's in the Bible is what belongs in the Bible? Because there are lots of people out there who put out bestsellers about secret books of the Bible or lost books of the Bible or books of the Bible that can form the basis of the Da Vinci Code fiction because these were ones that the church just kept out because it would have have revealed the truth. All of that type of garbage is something that's best understood if we know that there were very deliberate decisions made by holy people, not just within the church, but even within Jewish history, 
as to what was scriptural and what was not. The key to Old Testament scripture being scripture is that it was produced by a known prophet or attested to by a known prophet. And God put a test in Deuteronomy for when you would know that a prophet's legitimate. It's hard to argue with the legitimacy of Jeremiah as a prophet. He nailed it. It's hard to argue with the legitimacy of Ezekiel as a prophet. He nailed it. Ezra and Nehemiah nailed it. You've got prophets that are proven to be accurate who attest to Scripture. Now, for 400 years, the Jews don't have any Old Testament Bible. And Scripture is deemed silent because they said the age of prophets are past. Until the coming Messiah, there are no more prophets. No one else is proving it. Lots of people try. So then when people wanted to write something that they wanted to have authority, they wouldn't say, hey, I'm Joe Schmo writing this book. Instead, they'd say, hey, I'm Joe Schmo, and I found this book that was written by an old prophet, Enoch, before he died. Or I was out in the wilderness, and, and this old prophet showed up. Adam and Eve told me this themselves. Because they knew that the time of prophecy was dead. Now, having said all of that, they produce these writings, and these writings are well known. Jude quotes and references these in the New Testament book of Jude. Some of these are apocalyptic literature, and we'll reference them back when we go into Revelation, when we look at Matthew 24 and some of the things Jesus said. These are, script, these are not scripture, these are writings that talk about the coming of the Son of Man. They talk about Melchizedek. They talk about the coming Messiah. They talk about the battles between angels and demons. They talk about cosmic journeys through the heavens. They are groundwork that God saw fit to lay, even though they're not inspired scripture. They're groundwork God saw fit to lay to make sense of the New Testament. And to make sense to those who lived in the New Testament day. And we can't fairly understand. People who don't study these things think, oh, the Bible, the New Testament could not have been written in the New Testament time. It just shows too much advanced thought. Well, those people need to quit just reading that and go back and read what had gone on for the 400 years before. Jesus came at the fullness of time. God had everything ripe for the people to understand what it meant for him to be the Son of Man. Not just in what was in Daniel, but in what was in this literature as well. What it meant for a coming Messiah. What it meant to be after the order of Melchizedek. What it meant for there to be battles between angels and demons and the casting out of demons. All of that groundwork was laid very clearly. In the Testament of Job, you'll read about his daughters speaking in ecstatic utterances. The Testimony of Job. Then, or thus, when the one called Himera arose, she wrapped around her own string just as her father said. She took on another heart. She changed her mind. No longer minded toward earthly things. Whoops. Earthly things. But she spoke ecstatically in the angelic dialect. Sending up. There we go. A hymn to God in accord with the hymnic style of the angels. She allowed the Spirit to be inscribed on her garment. These are writings that had been put there. And in the fullness of time, Jesus comes and His church. The, the, the ground's already been plowed. You know, you go back to Jesus and the parable of the sower and the seed where He likens the kingdom of heaven to seed that's fall. Some of it falls on rocky ground and it doesn't do anything at all. Some of it grows in the midst of weeds and it just gets choked out. But some of it in soil that is fertile, that is furrowed, that is prepared, and that produces crop. And that's the kingdom of heaven. And God had prepared the groundwork, not just historically, 
But in thought, in literature, and in culture, it was the perfect time, the ripest time, the fullness of time for Jesus to come. And for all of this to be understood enough by those people that they would martyr themselves and give their lives for the faith. Not to mention the fact that they ask questions we ask. And so you get some answers. Where did Cain get his wife? <laughs> Jubilees, 4-9. It's even got her name. This is a freebie. You don't get this at every Baptist church. Look at this. In the third week, in the second jubilee, she, that's Eve, bore Cain. And in the fourth, that's the fourth week. She was having a kid every week. She was really dropping them. And in the fourth, she bore Abel. And in the fifth, she bore Awan, his daughter. Okay? Now, it's at the beginning of the third jubilee that Cain kills Abel because of the sacrifice issue. Look here, down at the descendants of Adam. So Adam and his wife were mourning four weeks of years on account of Abel. In the fourth year of the fifth week, they rejoiced. Adam knew his wife. She bore a son. He named him Seth, blah, blah. Then, verse 9, And Cain took his sister Awan as a wife. And she bore for him Enoch. And that's when they started building their city. Kind of interesting that the questions we ask as young Christians today were being asked back then too, and they made it up. All right, I, 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 I'm running out of time. All right, let me throw out one more passage here. There is a, a, there's a lot of wisdom literature and philosophical literature, including the sentences of the Syriac Menander. Syria is north of Israel, south of Turkey. It's the area close to where Saul of Tarsus was from. Saul of Tarsus, an educated Jew studied Menander. Menander was famous in Greek thought because he was a comic writer. Not like comic strips, but he wrote comedies. And so the Jews tried to tap into his thought and they wrote kind of a comedic uh, wisdom. Here's a sample. If you want to take a wife, first find out about her tongue. Take her only then. Because a talkative woman is a hell. And a bad man is a deadly plague. Now, those are the sentences of Syriac, the Syriac Menander in these false writings. Probably not really him. But it's very interesting to me that when Paul is on Mars Hill and he's talking to the Greeks, and we're going to talk about it when we get there. But in book of Acts, Luke tells the story, Paul quotes Menander to the Greeks, not fake Menander. He quotes the real Menander. Something he had at ready recall. So on Mars Hill, we'll get the real Menander. Points for home. First, Romans 3.2, Paul says that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now I want to draw a distinction here because Paul drew a distinction. There was a distinction between writings about God and writings that were the oracles proceeding forth from God. Old Testament scripture are oracles that proceeded forth from God. They're worthy of a reverence. They're worthy of a study. And they're worthy of a respect beyond any other type of literature. They will be joined, according to the church and according to orthodoxy and practice, by New Testament writings equally inspired by God. But that's what we have. And so my question to you, this was a point for home last week, but still my same challenge. Please commit with me to spending time and energy to learning why. It's going to enrich our study of the New Testament, what we've already done in the Old Testament. But we'll bring in Old Testament, we'll bring in intertestamental, that time period in the middle, as we unpack the New Testament on a whole new level, I hope. Then we're still sticking with the second point for home, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. When the fullness of time, God is a God with perfect timing. And that is true in your life, and that is true in my life. There's not a time in your life that God hasn't perfectly provided for. 
And then my favorite passage for this, new one for this week. Point for home comes out of Paul's writing to the Philippians. Here's what he said in chapter 4. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, how are you spending your spare time? If there's anything true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, anything of excellence, think about these things. Now, we got a lot of Protestants in here that'll say, well, that's not in the Bible. I don't know. That's not in the, my Bible. That's true. But that doesn't change the fact that it's, there's, there's still some wonderfully godly writings that Paul read. They inspired him. There are some wonderful godly songs on the radio you can listen to. There's wonderful music. There are some wonderful thrilling stories. There are great things to read in the area of Christianity. I'm not saying don't spend time studying scripture. Do. And understand it reverently in a cut above and a class above everything else. But you won't spend your entire life doing that. You've got other time, and I would urge you not to spend your efforts reading Dune Buggy Baby. But find something true and honorable and right and pure and lovely of good repute. Something of excellence. Something that's commendable. Something. And do you know what Paul ends that verse with, or that section of verses in Philippians 4 with? He says, think on these things and the God of peace will be with you. So I want to urge and encourage us not just to go from here saying, man, I'm going to study the Bible more. I want that. But I also want us to think, what else am I feeding my mind? Because there's a lot of great stuff to feed your mind with. Don't just do the negative. Don't put in your mind what you don't want your kids to put in yours. Instead, do the positive. Put into your mind the things you would like put into the minds of your loved ones. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the joys of, of newness and freshness in, in, in every page of our lives. As you are able to, to, to bring us to a greater perspective and, and appreciate more fully the incredible depths of your love, your planning, your, your provision, your providence. And Lord, as we see all of that, don't ever let us lose focus that you've done it for each one of us and called us by name. We are honored beyond our ability to say to be your children. And I pray that this class will be an encouragement to each of us to grow closer to you day by day until we see you face to face, Lord Jesus, in whom we pray, amen.